And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and it's been a, a busy week of lots of news as usual, but I think one story that, well, it may have eluded your radar because it happened on Shabbat for one reason and also because it happened during the Thanksgiving weekend holidays and there's a lot of things to distract us during that time. But just to reiterate and make it clear, the major headline, in case you did miss this story, the father, you know, really the creator and still the head of Iran's very controversial and dangerous nuclear program, a man by the name of Moshen Fakhrizadeh, Moshen Fagrizadeh was assassinated in Tehran on Saturday. And so far, no one has claimed responsibility for the killing. Iran is blaming Israel and some of its own dissident movements, one of its own dissident movements known as the People's Mujahideen, for the killing. Mostly Israel, though, is, is who Iran's regime is blaming it on. Israel hasn't really commented on it. They're certainly not taking responsibility for it. They've never really, it's never been very clear who knocked off some of Iran's nuclear scientists years ago, about a decade ago, when the program really got going in a more dangerous fashion, toward, much t- closer towards weaponization, which unfortunately it's gone right back to in the last year or so. But... It was understood in the intelligence community, or at least in some of the political science world, that Israel was likely behind that with American help, uh, or at least some understanding of that back then. So there's a lot of reason to believe that Israel is behind this. Israel is certainly the country most threatened by Israel's by Iran's nuclear program. And a little later in the program, I, I want to talk about the arguments that we make, that people can make one way or the other, talking about the justifications for and discussing of suicide, but of not suicide, of assassinations, I'm sorry, of assassinations. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the program, but I want to make sure that we get some of the facts in here before we start having a moral debate. And that's always important because you'll see, not only on social media, which I understand, social media very much lends itself towards a fast-forwarding of all the details, if you thought television and radio fast-forwarded past details in a way that books don't or college courses don't or lectures don't or things like that, you're absolutely right. But social media takes the cake. Social media is really fast-forwards to emotions right away, really fast-forwards to moral um, pronunciations right away, the whole proclamations right away. That's what social media does. So I don't want to do that as much as I possibly can, I want to avoid a little bit of that because I want to, before, I want to avoid that fast-forwarding and I want to sort of set a little bit of a basis here and get some more of the information out there that you should know. The first piece of information that I want to put out there, and maybe this is a little self-serving on my part, but I still think it's possibly the most important thing to remember or at least something that cannot be left out, and that is that Fakhrizadeh was a part officially of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So we're not talking about a, a, a scientist, a mild-mannered, peaceful scientist in some lab somewhere who may have been co-opted by evil military guys in Iran who were kind of maybe, maybe forcing him to do this kind of stuff. None of that is true. Not only was he a part of the Iranian regime in body and soul, 
But he was part of, again, the IRGC, which is absolutely the most powerful, most effective, sadly, and most far-reaching terrorist army, army, a group that kills innocent people more than any other in the world. It is the power behind some of the other terrorist groups that you hear about. Hezbollah is nothing, for example, without the IRGC and its infrastructure. And he was an officially high, very high-ranking person in the IRGC. Again, that stands for Islamic Revolutionary Guard, Guard Corps. A lot of people think the I stands for Iran, which is fine because only Iran has the IRGC. But again, the official name is Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which again is part of the despicable nature of this group. You know, they, they take on the name and the supposed religious legitimacy of an entire religion in, in their killing. And the IRGC's hand is in almost every despicable act, not only in the Middle East, but certainly in some parts of Europe, certainly in parts of South America. For those of you who remember the, the terrorist attacks on the Jewish community in Argentina in the 1990s. The list goes on and on and on. And yes, it was the IRGC's commander, Mohammed Soleimani, who the, who the United States, under the Trump administration, knocked off uh, last year, at the end of last year. So these are the kinds of things that the IRGC is known for. And this scientist nuclear scientist was really a weapons expert. He was a weapons scientist. And he was involved, not only was he connected to the IRGC, he was one of the major leaders of the IRGC. So that's who he was. That's who he was. And it's important to remember that he was an enemy combatant. This was not, again, like a a private citizen a, a person who had not had a, a record uh, or a connection to killings and all kinds of other things. I mean, someone just as, imagine if the, he weren't even involved in the nuclear program. Someone as high-ranking as he was in the IRGC absolutely can be considered uh, in, the, in, the, in terms of international law as an enemy combatant, as a leader of an army that kills innocent people. So that's important to remember. That's important to keep in mind, very, very clearly in mind. The first point that you must remember about Moshe Fakhrizadeh. Yes, he keeps saying nuclear scientist, but I, I would like to say, to make it more clear, that he was an IRGC nuclear weapons founder, program founder and leader. That's really the title that you should be using for him. Not just to, to win an argument or to say something snarky on social media, but just to, to state the facts. This wasn't someone who was just trying to figure out new uh, uses for nuclear energy or a physicist trying to figure out the universe. This is someone who was dedicated his life and his professional life and his personal life towards the weaponization of nuclear, uh, of nuclear arms and the use of it to threaten Iran's neighbors, especially Israel. So that's very important. Now, who did it? Now, again, the Iranian regime immediately blamed Israel, but remember, it was the United States, and President Trump has proudly taken responsibility for this, that knocked off the IRGC's commander, Soleimani, at the end of last year. So we cannot rule out that the United States was behind this. I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it were the United States, and I wouldn't be surprised if it were the United States that Israel was a key 
aid in, in, in the action, in the operation. But it's important to understand that the United States had just as much motive here, especially the Trump administration, and we'll talk about the why now. That really dovetails into the why now argument. But especially the Trump administration, which is very worried about the apparently incoming Biden administration returning to the nuclear deal that most of us understand only guarantees Iran nuclear weapons. <laughs> it, the, the people who support, even the people who support the Iran nuclear deal admit that this is only a decade delay, perhaps. Of course, the evidence, there's very strong evidence that was presented to the world by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and basically confirmed by the UN, as we know, is no friend of Israel, that Iran was doing plenty of things to forward its nuclear weapons program, even when the Iran deal was in place. In fact, during his 2018 international address to present this evidence of Iran moving forward with its weapons program during the Iran nuclear deal, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu mentioned Moshin Fakhrizadeh's name, specifically, by name, and said we should all remember his name because he is so much a part of not only this weapons program overall and the creation of it in Iran, but the furtherance of it during the Iran nuclear deal and when it was supposed to be in a frozen you know, state of stasis. And it wasn't. But people in the Biden incoming, apparent, the apparent incoming Biden administration and people who support the Iran deal have continued to turn a blind eye to this, have continued to pretend this wasn't true. And it's very possible that the Trump administration decided for the safety of the world to knock off this guy now before another administration likely comes in, restores all the financial and economic advantages that Iran can possibly have at this time and speeds it up even further. Maybe the taking out of this guy, Fakhrizadeh, will negate any positives that Iran would get from another administration. It's very likely that it would negate a lot of it, if not all, because he was so very central to the Iranian weapons program. doesn't mean that, that it's over. Obviously, there will be other people who can take the reins, but there are a lot of people who believe this was an essential, he was the leader in more than just a moral and uh, in a way of motivation, motivational way. He was the leader who knew a lot of the, the facts, who really knew how to implement a lot of the science and really knew how to delegate it properly. And his loss will be definitely a setback for the Iranian nuclear weapons program. The question is how long. But if you're expecting another administration to come in and take away whatever stoppages there are, whatever roadblocks there still are towards Iranian nuclear weapons, even though we know the Iranians kept going, we also know that they were at least inconvenienced in some way. But again, just a delay in the Iran nuclear deal. The the Iran nuclear deal only guaranteed, basically guaranteed, only promised, because it did not guarantee it because it didn't happen, promised a 10-year delay in Iran's march towards nuclear weapons, which everyone in the Middle East who actually was there, the actual leaders of these countries, I'm not talking about the one or two cranks they keep dredging up out of Israel. And again, by one or two, I literally mean one or two. They found one or two people in Israel, you know, about five years ago, who used to be part of the Mossad, used to be part of the defense ministry, 
who said they were in favor of the Iran nuclear deal. These were probably the only two people with any credentials at all, and they were credentials in the past, who had any support for the deal. And you can imagine how much news media coverage and how many times they were interviewed and got their names in the paper and their faces on TV. The answer was a lot. Because there was a bias in favor of anything the Obama administration was behind, and they tried to find somebody in Israel who would be in favor of it. They, could, they found a couple of people who were way out of the mainstream, who were, way, who were wrong, obviously, on the facts, because they were proven wrong. Again, even the UN <laughs> admitted or certified the Israeli evidence that Prime Minister Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu presented to the world a couple of years ago. But other than those two cranks, the people in the Middle East who were in any, any experienced role or any kind of role of responsibility looked at each other and said, even if we are lucky enough to get a 10-year delay on the Iranian nuclear weapons program, what does that do for us? 10 years is nothing. We've got to do something. And that's, of course, one of the major catalysts for the change of the political, the absolute political stage in the Middle East. It wasn't the only reason why Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states have moved closer to peace and, and in some cases have actually made real peace. But it was a big part of it. It was a big part of it, no doubt. Uh, I think that also has a lot to do with the why now. While the Israelis in the Gulf, sta- in the Gulf states are starting to move closer, I think the United States and or Israel, whoever was behind this assassination, really wanted to show what that cooperation can do. It can take out these threats. It has a positive result. It's got a positive economic result. I mean, every single day we keep opening up our, web, our, our, our emails and seeing, or our social media pages and keep seeing new stories of Bahrain or UAE businesses getting more involved in Israel, more conferences, more flights, the whole thing. We're seeing more and more of this. And that's extremely important. And I think it's actually quite essential. But don't forget, there's also a military aspect to this and a, an intelligence community aspect to this. And I think that the world should see at this time that this, pro- this produces results. Probably the world's leading and most dangerous weapons expert, nuclear weapons expert, nuclear weapons belligerent, I, m- I probably say, has been taken out. And I think a lot of it may have to do with the partnerships that are continuing to form between Israel, Israel and Arab countries, these Gulf Arab countries in the Middle East. So that's another reason for the why now. And again, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, remember that these partnerships between Israel and and its Arab neighbors continue to produce real exciting events, including one here that's going to occur here on the Nachum Siegel Network next week. December 8th through the 10th, the JM and the AM program with Nachum Siegel is going to be broadcasting from Dubai. Incredible. I think they're going to be doing four shows. I know they're going to be doing the JM and the AM program U.S. time on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of December. And I think on the 10th, they're going to do an extra program in the afternoon, again, U.S. time. I mean, this is, these are the real, these are the real amazing results of peace going on right now between Israel and those Arab countries. And again, it's, it's great. We, we have this radio program that's going to be going on there in, you know, in, in, in the week of December 8th. We have this wonderful uh, flights and other business investment going on. But don't forget, there's an intelligence community and a military security aspect to this, which some people think is 
the whole thing. I think it's a big part of it, but it's not the whole thing. But every once in a while, we need to be reminded that Israel and its Arab neighbors are very, are existentially threatened by the, by Iran. Whether it's from a nuclear program or from their terrorist attacks. How many people in the, how many other Muslims have the Iranians killed? And I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. It's more than Jews or Christians. Iranians through the IRGC, through Hezbollah, through the Houthi rebels, through the Syrian civil war have killed more Muslims more Arabs in the Middle East than any amount of Jews or Christians they, they could ever kill, or they, they're, they're hoping to kill. Believe me, I'm not hoping to motivate them. So if you and I, as supporters of Israel, or supporters of the United States, are frightened and concerned about Iran's nuclear weapons program, imagine if you're somebody who lives in a country that's already seen tens of thousands of innocent people killed by Iran. Now, Iran has a lot of American blood on its hands. We know that they were behind the killings of hundreds of American soldiers in the Iraq War, the second Iraq War, the one between 2003 and, I guess, 2012, you could say. I'm not really sure when you want to say the end of that war really ended. But you, you, the, the, the one that started in 2003. We have strong evidence that the Iran and, again, here comes that name again, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, we know they were behind the killings of hundreds of American soldiers in Iraq during that war. So we aren't exactly, we have no reason not to be afraid of or concerned about Iran. But imagine if you're in Yemen. Imagine if you're in Saudi Arabia. Imagine if you're in Syria. Imagine if you're in Lebanon. And we're talking about that number multiplied by a thousand. So you can't just sit by and tell yourself, well, it'll be 10 years before Iran gets a nuclear weapon. Now, what am I worried about? I mean, that set up in a major alarm bell in Saudi Arabia and all those Gulf countries and all those places that Iran threatens. Rightfully so. And so they sought the help of Israel in a more serious way. And that has led to all kinds of other good things that aren't military and aren't security uh, uh, connected, but just as important. So that's another one. I want to say a little bit about how Fekhrizadeh was killed, because we don't know much about it. But we do know that the Iranian regime is claiming that the Israelis use some kind of satellite-controlled vehicle with a machine gun on top of it to kill Fekhrizadeh, the, the nuclear weapons belligerent. Um, doesn't seem very likely that that was the way it happened. For those people who understand how satellite technology works and the whole inner workings of it, not that Israel can't do amazing things with technology, and we've seen that happen over and over again. Not that that isn't a, a, something that we should just laugh off because, not that that is something that we should laugh off because it is hard to believe that, you know, that Israel has accomplished a lot of things it really has accomplished. But, that seems like a stretch, and you must understand that Iran has, the Iranian regime has a tremendous vested interest, a tremendous vested interest in claiming that some kind of science fiction-like technology killed this guy. And that's because of, again, this is the self-serving part that I was talking about a little bit earlier. That's because as my exclusive story, and it's still an exclusive story, and you can find it on LinkedIn, and at the end of this program, I will tell you where you can find it again if you want to find it on Twitter. My exclusive story from back in July, which I have detailed here on the Nachum Siegel Network on Novak Now 
on previous editions of Novak Now. And again, I will link to the archives so you can find those programs. But my exclusive story back in July where I had sources that I have now have really been 100% confirmed telling me that very high-ranking people within the IRGC had decided to basically defect, for lack of a better word, had decided to help the United States and Israel, and were starting to tell the United States and Israel about the locations of their weapons uh, storage areas and about where some of their key leaders were, including Soleimani, and now I believe including Fekrizadeh. Now, the Iranians don't want to admit that he didn't have, they didn't have strong enough security to protect this guy, their number one weapons belligerent. And they also don't want to come to terms with the fact that they've got very high-ranking people, including, I think, a lieutenant general within the IRGC, who are telling the Israelis in the United States where they can find some of these targets, both human and weapon, hum, humans and weapons areas. Remember that huge explosion in Beirut in the summer was part of that operation, from what, my, my, from what I believe from my sources, that that had something to do with also a, an Israeli or a U.S.-involved attack or sabotage of a major Hezbollah-Iranian-connected weapons storage area in Beirut. Amazing that more people didn't die. If you remember that incredible explosion with the shockwaves coming out of it that you could all see on video and everyone shared. Rightfully so. It's, you can't take your eyes off of it. Anyway, this is part of it. So this is the self-serving part. Again, I, I use my, still my exclusive story. I will put it up on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. I'll, I'll say that again at the end of the program. But the question is, has, does this confirm that there is somebody in, or, or a couple of people within the IRGC fingering these targets, whether they're human or weapons? I say yes. And I think Iran is coming up with this science fiction explanation for how the assassination was carried out to cover up the fact that, A, they don't have very good security within Tehran for their own people, and B, that they probably have moles within their own IRGC who clearly see that the regime is corrupt and clearly see the, the regime is crumbling or has a chance to crumble, and they want out. They want out. There's also a very important point we need to make about hypocrisy here. Now, you've probably heard me say here on the Nachum Siegel Network on Novak Now that hypocrisy and politics are completely interchangeable. You can't be a politician unless you're a hypocrite, and, you can't, and, and hypocrisy really is politics. You can be a hypocrite without being a politician, but it sure does help. They're basically interchangeable, but hypocrisy is really a very good definition of politics. And I can go into more detail about that but the point, the easiest way to explain that is even if you're the most honest and moral politician and even effective politician out there, because you're in politics, meaning you're a part of a, a party or an administration or a government, you are coupled with people who are incredibly immoral by definition. may, may, may only be a couple people in, in the best of times, but you will defend them or you will basically be on their team even though you say – that's what you're against. You're against immorality or corruption or all those things. Again, you might be the most moral and anti-corrupt politician, but if you're in politics, you're going to be working with immoral and corrupt people, and that's an inherent hypocrisy. Again, I could go into more detail about it, but, and, and, you, and, and that's for another time. But hypocrisy and the way that people talk about Iran and the way that Iran talks about itself goes beyond the political paradigm here. It's beyond any kind of measure. It's outrageous. You have Iran, 
the country that through the IRGC and through uh, its, its terrorist and, and, and uh, proxy armies is responsible for the most terrorism, for the most assassinations, for the most killings of innocent people in the last century. Something that has actually ratcheted up greatly in recent years, if you include the, its, its involvement in the Syrian civil war and the Yemeni civil war and all the other attacks and the killing of thousands of its own people who have been killed in the, in the protests that, be, that, were going, that were raging at this time last year. Can you believe it was just a year ago in Iran where thousands of people were killed by their own security forces just for protesting? And in an incredibly egregious narrative that we heard from some of the protest movement leaders in Iran, people who were killed, the families of protesters who were killed by IRGC and other government thugs in Iran were visited by those government officials in their homes and asked to pay for the bullets, pay for the cost of the bullets to kill, that killed their loved ones. That's how incredibly cruel the Iranian regime is and was at that time and still is. And this is the country now that not only itself is sending its own spokesman out to the world and on the television news to talk about how terrible and inhumane it was that their number one weapons belligerent the nuclear weapons mastermind, evil mastermind, was killed, they're saying how terrible it is. How, how could someone kill someone on the street like that? It's so immoral. Iran does this every single day, and worse, much worse. Iran doesn't go around and kill the weapons experts from its countries that, are, that it's at war with. It just kills the innocent people, including its own people. And they're going to cry crocodile tears and and expect everyone else to be upset about it. And yes, it's incredibly disappointing. Again, hypocrisy excuses aside to see so many American former officials and people who probably will be part of the Biden administration doing the same thing. The Ben Rhodes's of the world, the John Brennan's of the world, these people who were involved in the Obama administration and its foreign policy, crying the crocodile tears over this and saying, how horrible it is that this person was killed and assassinated. The world's number one nuclear weapons, belligerent mastermind, mad scientist, really evil scientist, is killed. And you have American officials decrying it? Now, I want to spend the last 90 seconds here on Novak now just talking about that aspect of it, the morality of political assassinations or assassinations of individuals. A lot of times when you hear this discussion debated, it's just a discussion of whether someone should be killed or not. It's never put into the context of the bigger picture, which is, are we talking about killing one person who could be responsible for the killings of thousands or millions of people, or are we talking about, one, or, or, or are we talking about just a regular guy or gal? Some of you may remember the story I told of my uncle, who was General MacArthur's interpreter during World War II and also during the military occupation of Japan, where he allowed loyalists toward the emperor, high-ranking loyalists towards the emperor and high-ranking people who wanted democracy in Japan to fight it out in the jail cells of Tokyo because they were both under arrest for, for issues that had been gone on during the war. And he said this was better than having a civil war in Japan that would have killed hundreds of thousands of people. And I think he was right. So if you want to have the debate about political assassinations and whether they're right or wrong, you need to ask yourself, is it about stopping the killings of more people? Is it really about that? For example, 
Would the assassination of Hitler had it been successful in 1944 by Klaus von Stauffenberg and his gang, would that have worked to save, for example, the Jews in the concentration camps? I think we can make an argument about that that might be a little bit different, even though we might certainly be in favor of, of, of having knocked him off. But I want everyone to remember that. Again, follow me on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY, for the links to the articles I've mentioned. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.